What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The Gist is sponsored by Citrix GoToMeeting. When meetings matter, millions choose GoToMeeting. Hold a meeting with anyone from the convenience of your computer, smartphone, or tablet. Get a free 30-day trial by visiting gotomeeting.com and clicking the Try It Free button. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, April 14th, 2015 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. An update on a story that we reported on last week. The predominant method of performing an abortion after the first trimester, which is to say 100,000 or so abortions a year, that method has been banned in the state of Kansas. That was our report. And now Oklahoma has followed suit with the signing of a law by the governor of that state. On Friday, we spoke with Dahlia Lithwick, who covers the courts for Slate and hosts the Amicus podcast. So I wanted to ask her one question. One question only here is that question and that answer. There is another front in the abortion war, and that is restrictions on on sites that perform procedures. A major recent one is to require that every site that performs abortions have a doctor that has admitting privileges in a local hospital. Practical effect, many centers have closed. You could go to certain places in the rural United States where it's hundreds of mile drive until you get to an abortion provider. What's the more serious threat, do you think? Laws like this or, you know, gradually closing abortion providers so that whole states like South Dakota don't even have someone who can actually perform an abortion and adhere to the law? I think that they are both of a piece. But I think if you look at the sort of drip, drip, drip of laws like that, laws that involve costly retrofitting of clinics, if you look at the raft of laws that are regulating medication abortions and how doctors can prescribe abortion uh, drugs, if you look at the raft of laws that are really requiring these ultrasounds in certain states and scripts, I think that they're all converging on the court. But I think that there's a good, good chance that the mandatory ultrasound cases are going to come up to the court very soon after that. And as Dahlia says, there are at least four votes pretty solidly for significantly weakening, if not overturning Roe versus Wade. Then there's Justice Kennedy, who has ruled that Roe is settled, but he also upheld the law banning partial birth abortions. As Dahlia wrote then, his opinion blossoms from the premise that if all women were as sensitive as he is about the fundamental awfulness of the procedure, they'd refuse to undergo it since they aren't, he'll decide for them. So even though we do not know what the latest laws spell for the future of reproductive rights, we do know that I do not know how to spell, period. And that is the nature of the show today. Spelling. It is a spelling super show. I give it a B, as in the letter B, which is spelled B, or a spelling B, which is spelled B-E-E, or the woman's name B, B B-E-A, or the verb to be, B-E. Has all this spelling gotten you tense? Well, good, because I spiel about my favorite tense. But first, for a spell, a pretty long spell, because the only interview in today's show, we go all about spelling. So joining me now is Masha Bell. She's a former teacher and a researcher of English, and she's written books and e-books. Her blogs are English Spelling Problems and Reforming English Spelling. Hello, Masha. 
Hello. Now, I know you have an e-book out. So is that E as in deal or the E sound as in diesel or the E as in key or people? Or actually, it's just an E, isn't it? It's just an E. In, in that case, it has a long E sound because, of course, in, uh, the letter E can have a short S sound as in bed and net and wet and so on. Yes. So your personal biography is that you were not a native English speaker, right? You were born and raised in Lithuania. That's right. And so do you think that vantage point is what made you realize, as many learners of English do, wow, this is screwed up and doesn't have to be? Well, yes. I mean, the first reaction was kind of, this is crazy. And the first question that came to my mind was, how can they bear doing this to their children? Mm. Because even at that age, I could see that a system like that makes learning to read and write so much harder. And I, I had great trouble kind of getting my head around, you know, the, the idea that people put up with this, that they don't do something about it. That's what I found outrageous. Uh, you don't have to convince me. I am a poor speller. That's P-O-O-R, not P-O-U-R, as in liquid, <laughs> or P-O-R, P-O-R-E, as in of the skin. And I have a young child who's learning to spell. And you don't even realize it until you go through it with a young child. But, yeah, there are so many words that make no sense. Like, why is any, why does the word any begin with an A? That absolutely exactly. makes no sense. But my exactly. question is... How do you make the connection between the complexity of spelling and often the logic of it to the fact that it is harming literacy? How it, That seems a very difficult thing to prove. Well, two things. I mean, obviously, if you have letters making the same sound as in cat, sat, mat, or keep, sleep, deep, it's very easy for children to get the idea that these letters, you know, that letters make sounds. And you can associate either single letters or double like e, double e with a certain sound. And you can have a chart up on the wall with little pictures, as they do in continental Europe. And once you've learned these basic sounds for the alphabet of your language, as I did in Lithuanian, my grandmother taught me in roughly a fortnight, you can then improve yourself. You don't need any more adult help because you, you just have this little chart which tells you what sounds are with a few words. And once you've learned to read a few words, you can read any word. But in English, man, many, on, only, once, other, you know, you have to learn to read the words kind of as holes, really, or you have to you know, children hesitate. They're not sure how to pronounce kind of um, route and, you know, and a root or, or things like that because they, they need help. They keep getting stuck on words like once. And, um, and that, that's just for reading. Now, obviously, reading helps with spelling too. And the children who don't learn to read, I mean, not only do they have more trouble with um, spelling, but it really holds them back intellectually. It thwarts their intellectual potential because it's a little bit like if you had a running race with everybody having strong, tall or weak, having to carry a big weight on their back, the strong ones would get ahead without too much trouble. But the weak ones would really get way, left way behind. And this is what happens with English. The children who take a very long time to learn to read don't, really move on to other learning. 
So they are kind of stuck for years on just learning to read and write and learning very, very little of anything else. And even by the time they leave school, uh, they, they're still disadvantaged. Whereas if you have an easy system, okay, the best ones will learn very fast. But the, the weaker children, like in Finland or in Italian, Spanish, you know, where the reading is much easier, even children who are not that fantastically bright manage to learn to read in at least their first year at school. And so once they can do that, they can move on to other learning. They don't get so demotivated. Um, and you don't have children after five years at school still struggling with reading. And that makes obviously a all-round kind of difference to, uh, to their overall progress. The fact that English doesn't just make learning to spell and to write difficult, I mean, like French does quite a bit too, but the fact that it actually makes learning to read exceptionally difficult, that is its biggest, uh, the, the biggest drawback of the English spelling system. If I made you the czar, T-S-A-R, or C-Z-A-R, or the czarina, I guess, of spelling, where would you come down on homographs and homophones? So I was talking about poor, poor, and poor. Is it good yeah, or I bad think... to have different spellings for similar-sounding yeah, words uh, that have different meanings? Complete waste of time. <laughs> uh, basically, in speech, you know, it doesn't matter if you, if you say to me, you know, come for tea at 4 o'clock. I know exactly what you mean. No problem. Uh, to differentiate them in writing is just totally gratuitous. I mean, we have over 2,000 words, like mean, like lean, um, like ground, like found, <laughs> etc., that have more than one meaning. You know, bank, tank, I, well, I could go on. <laughs> you know, I, as I said, there are over 2,000 words, uh, roughly 2,500 fairly common ones, that have more than one, one meaning, uh, and we spell them the same way. And, and it doesn't cause anyone the slightest difficulties. And the different meanings of, um, you know, there, for example, even very young children or it uh, um, or C and C, they learn to use them accurately in speech long before they start to read and write. And they have no problem with them whatsoever. But, of course, once they have to learn to write them differently, that's when they become kind of anxious about use of language and um, it makes writing kind of a big deal. Well, writing is quite a big deal, but it makes it much more so because of silly difficulties like that. So, Masha, in trying to book this interview, Andrea, uh, our producer, emailed with you. And you yes. sent her a note that said, I replied earlier today, but to the wrong system rather than you. And you spelled it just you. And then later on, yes. you said, bit difficult to talk about spelling on the radio because you can't show the words. Again, you is spelled with a U. Now, was that a mistake? I'm going to say no. Shorthand, I'm going to say maybe. Or a principled stand. Is, do you always write you as a you? I do now. <laughs> because, I mean... If I is good enough for I... And it is, yeah. Why, why is you not good enough for you? I agree. You're good <laughs> enough for me. <laughs> uh, the other thing is, why do you need a capital I, you know? Yeah. If you, if you spell the word you with a small, uh, beginning with a small Y, I mean, why does I, at the beginning of a sentence, fine, but in the middle of a sentence? So, yeah, they're the two little things. Uh, and also trying to sort of drop really useless things like the E on R and have... Uh, because all they do is confuse children. I mean, for example, R and care, you know? Yep. They see the word R all the time, and then they come across the word care and dare. Um, and all those things are 
just traps to make learning to read and write more difficult. So at the very simplest, I mean, huh, if I could persuade more people to just start with you and I, <laughs> that would be a nice beginning. Uh, you know, so those of us who believe in it could take a stand and uh, indicate that we're in favor of spelling reform. I mean, that, that would be nice. Marsha Bell. And by the way, if your name was Penelope Bell, would you have to change your name? <laughs> Sorry, don't quite get why I would have to change my name. Well, I suppose the E on the end. There yes. you go, yeah, Penelope. Because yeah. I wouldn't want to be pronounced Penelope. Yeah, it would be hard. <laughs> Marsha Bell is really a uh, simplified spelling advocate. Among her many works are her blog, English Spelling Problems. Thank you, Marsha. Thank you very much, then. Think about the time. Think about the money. Think about the hassle it takes to wrangle an elephant. Mm-hmm. Thinking about that, construct a nuclear deal with Iran. Okay, how about this one? Hold a meeting. That's right. That's a pretty big bummer, too. My recommendation can't help you with the elephant or the Iranian thing, but you can meet your clients and coworkers online with Citrix GoToMeeting because it's the smarter way to meet. GoToMeeting makes it easy to meet with your team whenever you need to, wherever you are, because with GoToMeeting, you can meet from any computer, tablet, or smartphone without travel expenses, the hassle of traffic, getting trampled by giant megafauna, the Ayatollah yelling at you. Your team can join by clicking a link, no signups, no speed bumps, turn on your webcam, and with HD quality, it's like being in the room, but there's no elephant in the room. This is the genius of GoToMeeting. You can share screens to present, review, and get feedback in real time. Everyone sees what you're doing so your team can get to the same page and get going. I'd like you to sign up for GoToMeeting today. You can try it free for 30 days, nothing to lose. Visit GoToMeeting.com and click the Try It Free button. Do it now and have your first meeting up and running in minutes. That's GoToMeeting.com for your free 30-day trial. And now the spiel, the now spiel. 150 years ago today, Lincoln was shot. 150 years ago tomorrow, he died on a bed that didn't fit him. An allegory for the Procrustean bed of a nation that the philosopher president inherited. Riven by factionalism, forced to confront its original sin, the Union was saved by Lincoln, but the Savior was sacrificed in the process. On this night, 1865, Lincoln is sitting in his private box, our American cousin being acted out before him. He does not know that John Wilkes Booth, a stage actor whose fame rivals any luminary of the modern day, has a plan for vengeance. And I do not know why I switched tenses there. The Union was saved, our Savior was sacrificed, but then, next paragraph, he's sitting in the box. But you know what? I think I can figure it out. Because today and tomorrow, the sesquicentennial of the demise of the great emancipator, we will hear stories that take us to the place and to that time and to the tents. Listen to James Swanson, featured on NPR's Morning Edition. First, Swanson sets the scene using the past tense for the 150-year-old event. He came up these stairs with his guests. When he arrived, their audience finally realized the president was here. And so the orchestra broke into a performance of Hail to the Chief, and the actor suspended the play and made a tribute to Lincoln. And it's up this very same route Booth came. With full view of the stage, full view of the performance, the sound of the theater, the laughter, and then Booth stopped. Now, Swanson switches, the blood quickens. The events seem to be happening in front of us. It was like a ticking clock, four actors on stage now. Now three, now two. Now only Harry Hawk alone stands on stage, and he's about to say, 
a funny line that's going to cause the whole audience to break out in laughter, which Booth hopes will muffle the sound of his shot. Booth has in his left hand his bowie knife. In his right hand, he clutches the Derringer pistol. He hears that line, and he levels his right hand and almost touches the back of Lincoln's head with the Derringer pistol and fires. And now, here's the very next sentence that Swanson utters. So I'm not taking any of his words out, but listen how Swanson changes tense. He pulls back as a camera would a bout of cinematic raconteurism. He slows down, and we're asked to consider the event, not to live in it. Everything froze. The box took on a very devilish red color because of the artificial lights, the gas lamps, and and the smoke. Swanson was, in describing the actual firing of the shot and the moments leading up to it, he was using the historical present tense, also called the historic present. Historians use it all the time, in writing, but especially when speaking. Here I'm going to play Doris Kearns Goodwin talking on C-SPAN. I'll set the scene that she puts us inside. These two Republican progressive presidents were once great allies. They were crusading trust busters. Taft, Roosevelt's secretary of war. Roosevelt, Taft's mentor. But their relationship had frayed. Their friendship had suffered. They ran against each other for the presidency in 1912, but split the vote and allowed Woodrow Wilson to win. Until one day, after both had left office, after both seemed uninterested in attempts to mend their relationship, one day they came across each other. Taft comes to the Blackstone Hotel in Chicago. He's going up in the elevator, and the um, elevator opera says, well, Roosevelt is in the dining room sitting alone at a corner table. So Taft says, well, take me downstairs again. He goes downstairs, and there's a 100 diners in the room, and thank God there's a reporter there as well. Goes over to Roosevelt, says, I'm so glad to see you. Roosevelt embraces him. Somehow it, it had all worked by that time. They sit down together, and the entire restaurant claps. There's an eruption of applause. Teddy then says, thank God we got together. Not too many months later, Teddy dies an embolism in his sleep, and Taft goes to the private funeral and is crying more than anyone there and says to Teddy's sister, I would have, I would have mourned all my life if we hadn't become friends in the end. Taft comes, elevator operator says, Taft says, embraces, they sit, claps, dies, goes, is crying. All historians do this. Robert Caro is a master. Listen to this. Johnson doesn't realize what's happening to him. Johnson thinks he has the presidential nomination. By the time he wakes up, it's really too late. And later, from the same talk, Caro mentions that the Kennedy loyalists belittle LBJ, but doesn't just want to make it seem harmless or to have you hear it as an anachronism. He wants to make the slight seem real, to make it have more sting, so he uses the historic present. The Kennedy people, many of them despise him. They look at him with real contempt. They have a nickname for him, Rufus Cornpone. They say that Lyndon Johnson and Lady Bird they call Uncle Rufus and his little pork chop. They won't call him Mr. Vice President to his face. They call him Lyndon, which, which he can't stand. So, in, And this, of course, becomes common knowledge in Washington. So the newspaper headlines are saying things like, whatever became of Lyndon Johnson, what happened to Lyndon Johnson. And it's a terrible time for him. Um, It's the worst time of his life. Before it was history, it was life. Now, the historic present can be overdone. Some people don't like it. 
Over on the BBC, two historians and show hosts went at it, a row, as they say. They had a debate on the BBC over shows on the BBC using this tense. The headline of that debate was, The Historic Present Tense, Daft or Progress? Melvin Bragg and John Humphreys debate whether the historic present tense is bad grammar. Humphreys harumphed. I don't like it. Now, Melvin Bragg has to live with it. His In Our Time program frequently discusses history with historians like Edith Hall, who talk about people like Xenophon of Athens, who was a writer and soldier who died in 354 BC, but still gets the present tense. Because he's brought up in Athens, where there is a very great deal of talking and a very great deal of dialogue, um, he, he has a curiously egalitarian side, which makes him absolutely adamant that generals have to be nice to their soldiers, they have to feed their soldiers, they actually have to fight in the front ranks with their soldiers. Melvin Bragg, host of that program, said, listen, I don't like it when historians talk this way, but what am I going to do? This is the way historians talk. Well, if I talk to historians all day, Maybe that tense would grate on me, too. Let's say I went to a conference of historians back in 2014, and I was reporting on that conference to you right here now. I think I would say things like, then Drew Gilpin Faust said, to which Eric Foner responded, I wouldn't say, and then Gary Wills thinks about his answer. He clears his throat, and then he declares... So yeah, historic present is pretentious, and it is an affectation, but it's also effective. Maybe I consume too little history for it to really bother me, but when used well, I do feel like I'm in that room, on that battlefield, at that soul-stirring conference of historians. The floorboards creak beneath my feet. The smell of death hangs about me. The weakness of conference hall coffee swishes around my mouth. The quill pen heavy in my hands. The ringing in my ears won't stop. The breakout session on end notes beckons. And I can only weep because I know the truth that in a compelling narrative, as on a crocheted pillow or tattooed on the lower back of someone at Coachella, the present is a gift. Use it wisely. That's it for today's show. And then Andrea Salenzi decided I will be producer of The Gist. At that very same second, five days earlier, Joel Meyer has this thought. Managing producer, that's a title for me. But two days before that, but also for a week after, and certainly through the end of the fiscal quarter, Andy Bowers screws up his courage and makes a decision that will affect history going forward. I shall be executive producer. Guests of the gist stay at the Nicosia Cypress Hyatt, now featuring a full buffet and in all elevators, the music of 80s hair metal band Quiet Riot. So sample the Quiet Riot Hyatt diet. Don't believe us? Ask a sip riot. The gist, one last fact, one last fact of the day. We all know that the English prefer different spellings of some words than Americans do, but did you know that within England, there's a more liberal way of writing words and a more conservative way? And that conservative way is known in England as Tory spelling. But be cautioned, if you go with the Tory spelling, you just might get burned. E.T. can confirm the starlet was eating at a Benihana restaurant on Easter Sunday with her husband, Dean McDermott, and their kids when she tripped and fell onto a hot hibachi grill. Thanks for having had listened.
This is Stefan Fatsis of Slate's Sports Podcast, Hang Up and Listen. On this week's episode, we interview Sonny Vaccaro, a legend in the world of basketball and the basketball business. He's the star of a new documentary on ESPN called Soul Man. Stefan, he also might be the devil. Or deliverance thereof. You can subscribe to Hang Up and Listen at iTunes.com slash Slate Podcasts.